0: My guest today rob fitzpatrick and rob has experience building both startups and businesses for over 13 years he's been through y combinator and he's wrote a very popular book one of my favorites called the mom test um, he has previous experience as tech but he has migrated since into sales hi rob how are you and welcome to the show
1: i'm doing great thank you for having me sean
0: excellent super happy to have you here as i've said before and mom test is one of my favorite books i recommend it constantly So for anyone listening who hasn't actually read this book before, I'd highly recommend it. Um, But Rob, if you could give us a little bit of uh, your background, uh, talk about the work that you've done, perhaps what you're working on now.
1: I started as, well, I wanted to be an academic because I thought it was uh, free of uh, bureaucracy, you know, unlike the corporate world. And when I was halfway through my master's, I realized that I'd been terribly wrong and that... uh, there was uh, some bureaucracy, let's say, in academia, and uh, seeing my friends who were professors struggling with tenure and whatnot. And I really just wanted a direct connection between the work I was doing and the reward I got. I, I didn't want it to be, you know, I didn't want to have to play the games. And at about that time, I, I read some of Paul Graham's essays, and he was starting up Y Combinator. And I thought, oh, like startups seemed like a great idea. And I didn't know anything about it, but I basically took my academic research, I pitched it to YC. They said, no, that's a terrible idea. That'll never work, and it'll never scale. I was like, why did you fly me to California just to be mean to me? (laughs) And uh, it's a 10-minute pitch, right? You have 10 minutes to get the funding. And uh, we were now like four minutes into it, and and PG says, you know, well, we really like your team. You know, if you can come up with an idea that doesn't suck and which does scale, like, uh, we'll fund it. I was like, oh, man, I've only got six minutes. And he goes, hurry. And I was like, will you help? And he goes, okay. So we had a little idea jam, and by the end of it, he said that he would fund us. And so I kind of jumped into startups knowing nothing about them, and we made a tremendous number of mistakes. I really believe there's some basic education that you should have before you try to get into it. There's just some concepts. Like, we were building a viral consumer app, and we didn't know what a viral loop was. Like We, we were just woefully underprepared. But we had a great time, and you know, some, some good people believed in us, and we tried. And kind of the superpower of the entrepreneurs, that people want to believe in you and support you. And so we, we ended up getting some big customers like Sony and MTV, and we raised some funding from good investors, but we ultimately went out of business three, four years in, and I was pretty bummed out. And after that, I switched more into kind of freedom-oriented, lifestyle-oriented businesses because I felt like I was burned out, I was broke, I'd kind of been real beaten up by that first scalable business. So I was like, ah, I'm just going to take care of me for a bit. I wanted time to study and to think and to relax. Um, so I ran a, a couple little businesses. I switched into the education industry, built two or three products for universities, uh, and then started up an agency business uh, designing educational curriculums. Ran that for about three years, got that up to a million bucks a year. Uh, it was a good little business. There were only four people, so it was pretty profitable. Uh, but the founders all had different goals, so we you know peacefully shut it down, uh, took our dividend, moved on. And since then, I've been well after that I took two or three years off to mess around on my boat and I brought it from London to Spain via the French canals. Uh, I thought I wanted to be like a, a layabout, you know, at that point. And then I realized I quite like working. So I settled down in Barcelona and now I've got a little team of four working with my best friend, my girlfriend, some other buddies, uh, and we're building, uh, tools for independent authors trying to mess with the publishers. Cause I, I don't like the way they approach business and I want to undermine them.
0: Very cool. That's a, uh... Very interesting background, I will say. Um, I love the kind of organic path that you've taken. I have to say I've followed something uh, similar myself as I kind of realized what it is that I want to be working on, things I want to be doing. Curious to learn more about this uh, uh, sailing expertise that you've been picking up on. <laughs> I was reading more about that as well, too. How did you get into that?
1: Uh, I Sailing's always been on my bucket list. My parents met as a sailboat crew. My dad was a captain and my mom was a cook. She'd had like a terrible... She'd been a nurse and basically through some sort of crazy bureaucracy had been forced to stand by and watch terrible things happen. And so she was like, screw it. She was in London. She's like, screw it. I'm a student nurse. This is garbage. Uh, I need a vacation. She went out to Spain. And while she was there, someone was like, you want a job as on this boat? She's like, all right. Uh, met my dad and, and they ended up uh, kind of getting stranded in in America. They were both British. And so that's where I ended up being born and growing up. Uh, and so it was never something i did but it was always something that was kind of in my history so it was like on oh, my bucket list oh yeah someday i'd like to learn to sail and then one year when i was super stressed about work and bummed out and wasn't really feeling the startups and it was more stress than value for my life at the time uh, my buddy and co-founder he got me the kind of introductory sailing course you know the 5-day course to learn the basics and then my next birthday, a year later, I realized I still hadn't used the coupon he gave me. And I was so embarrassed. I was like, oh, man, I got to just schedule this. You know, my head was up my ass. I was just so stressed about my business. I wasn't living life. And so I did it kind of cynically. I was like, I'm not going to like this, but let's let's give it a try. And uh, I came back from that five-day course. You spent five days on the boat. The next day I woke up. It was a Saturday morning. I was in bed. I picked up my laptop. I opened eBay and I clicked buy it now on a sailboat.
0: <laughs> that's awesome i love the story i've i uh, can't say i haven't had similar experiences that's awesome <laughs> i think it's important to find that mix that balance right of like so passionate about the things that we do but i think it's also important to kind of step away and have those mental breaks and pick up other skills and i feel super complimentary to the work that we do so that's cool keep you posted on the uh the expeditions I'm, I'm always interested to learn more about that um <laughs> Next question I have for you, of course, is I've always wanted to hear the story as well. Also, but how did the mom test come to be? Because uh, I'm uh, <clears throat> obviously a big fan. Uh,
1: well, <laughs> very kind of you. I In terms of, I mean, there's two parts to this. There's the uh, me figuring out the skill and then uh, actually writing it as a book. And figuring out the skill was just like, man, I... I I think it's so hard for people who are good, naturally good at sales to empathize with people who are naturally bad at sales. And I was definitely on the bad at sales side of the spectrum. And most investors are pretty good with people or they've already reached a point in their career where they're like, they figured it out already. So they, they, you know, like Paul Graham was like, just talk to your users, just go talk to them, talk to them. And it's like, man, I'm trying it. Like nothing's working, you know, I'm getting lied to. And then our next investors, uh, out in London, they were like, yeah, just go talk to them. Just go sell. You got to hustle. And I'm like, I don't know how. And I was reading every book on sales. And just like, I was trying to apply it. And I was telling people what I was doing. and, And they're saying, yeah, that sounds correct. It sounds like you're doing everything right. But we just weren't getting the results. You know, and at the time we were burning, not a huge amount, we were still a small team, but we were burning say 20 grand a month. I'm like, man, my failures in these meetings are costing us twenty grand a month because I just can't move the company forward. And we would occasionally get a lucky deal where just the stars aligned and it happened to to work out. But it wasn't repeatable. I didn't really understand why it was working or not working. And eventually, one of my advisors, a dude named Peter Reed, who's amazing, uh, he we were chatting with him, catching up. Uh, the advisory board was so helpful, and. He was saying, listen, you guys have been struggling with this Sony Pictures deal for months. I'm going to be in LA next month. Why don't you guys fly out at the same time? We'll go into Sony Pictures together and we'll chat with them. You know, I said, all right, amazing. So we went out there. We showed up in the cheapest rental car imaginable because we were basically (laughs) scraping the bottom of the bank account. He shows up in this red convertible. He's like, it's Los Angeles. You know, you got to live a little. And we went into this meeting and I I started kind of my normal meeting pattern. And after just a matter of minutes, he cut me off and he took over the meeting and he basically ran the meeting and I played support. And at the end of it, he goes, all right, I know exactly what you're doing wrong. And I was like, I see exactly what I'm doing wrong. And it wasn't until that moment where, my, uh, where I was really confronted. There's this idea called uh pseudo teaching where if you tell people uh, the correct answer, they'll kind of map their current behavior to what you've said. They'll like reinterpret their behavior. And I was doing that with sales. People were like, you know, don't ask leading questions, do this, do this. And I was I was like, oh yeah, I'm I'm doing that. And I was just shifting my understanding of my behavior to fit what I was hearing. And when he actually saw me in the act, and when I saw him in the act, I couldn't I, I suddenly understood my mistakes. And after that, boom, my learning opened up. And we were too late. That was like two or two and a half years into the business already. And by three years, it was clear that we didn't have the runway to continue. The 2008 financial crisis happened just as we were raising our first big round. Uh, suddenly, our business was worth half of what it was worth the day before. I mean, people are going through that now as well. And anyway, so that business had to shut down. But in the following year, I was like, ah, I now have this nugget of truth. which pointed me in the right direction. So by talking to other entrepreneurs, uh, especially a guy named Salim Varani, who now lives out in Bulgaria. He's a Canadian Indian entrepreneur, Uh, kind of working with him. And we're doing this customer development stuff together. And we're swapping notes. And Lean Startup was a new thing. And we're kind of comparing how it worked with that. And eventually, it sort of clicked into place. And then through the education agency I set up, we helped set up a lot of accelerators across Europe. So basically, the accelerators were happening in California and New York. And then they came to London, and we helped set up some of them there uh, and deliver their education programs. And then as that wave pushed east through Europe, through Central Europe, and then Eastern Europe, and then down to the Middle East and Africa, we basically followed that wave, and we helped them design their education and mentoring programs. So that gave me a chance, and we would teach them, the first couple cohorts, we would like deliver the education and the mentoring, and then we would hand it off to their in-house trainers um and that gave me just like a three year uh, crash course in working with other entrepreneurs and i realized that of all the uh, things i thought i knew the one that was valuable and unique was this like this mom test idea uh and i was like okay great i'm adding value i'm happy but, but i'm building a business i'm doing other stuff and then the way i actually wrote it down as a book is I got drunk at this bar with another dude named Rob and <laughs> it was like on the back end of this uh, startup meetup we had where the only rule was you're not allowed to say anything nice about your own business, or your own product. You're only allowed to talk about the problems you have. Mm-hmm. So like, if you said anything positive about your business, you just got kicked out and weren't invited back. And it became like this great, like we had 50 people every week just being like, I am so screwed. And it really revealed the weakness and allowed us to help each other. And I met a lot of co-founders and great, great business partners that way. But this dude, Rob, the first time I met him, we got super drunk. And by the end of it, I, he, he'd been like, oh, uh, what are you doing for New Year's? And I'm like, nothing. He's like, I'm going to Bavaria with my wife's family. You should come with us. I was like, Yeah. And I woke up the next morning and, and there's like a message from him. And he's like, he's like, I know that was like a, a terrible idea, but if you want to come to Bavaria, the offer's still open. So I showed up there and the, uh, the father-in-law was just this dominating, like super alpha Don of the, uh, small Bavarian village. You know, he owned the power company and the sewage plant and the one bar and the one bowling alley. And he'd like shut down and he, he's like, Just so dominating. And they put me in this little cottage on their property with like no internet and no TV and nothing. And he he was such a personality that I just felt I had to get away from him. You know, he was wonderful and charming and super hospitable, but you know, I needed some time and I was there for like 10 days. And so I just sat in this cabin in Bavaria with like no media and no contact with anything. And I, I had a blank notebook and I just wrote the whole first draft in that week.
0: Wow. That's amazing. It's <laughs> that such a cool story. Um, the uh, and the things that you'd mentioned as well too, with regard to sales and the challenges and struggles on the, on the earlier side of things. I w- I'm an ex techie as well too. I guess probably a terrible techie still, but <laughs> I struggled to make that transition as well too. As far as like when I was trying to learn sales, I was reading a lot of what people were telling me to read, and it really wasn't helping. And like. Um, until the epiphany that I had sounds like an epiphany you had at some point as well, too, obviously, to create something like the mom test. But the epiphany that I ultimately had was starting with the problem like that. That was it. Like I, at, the, at the time, I didn't know because I'd seen so many bad examples of sales. I thought that was how sales was done. And like I thought the salesperson did most of the talking, not most of the listening. And that was completely wrong, too. And once I found out that, like, everything starts with a problem. Everything has to start with a problem, and without that, it's just until you get there, you're not there, and uh, you can't really you can't really make progress. So, the mob it was test such a seriously helps to... reinforce that.
1: Uh, well, it was such a relief for me to discover that. I mean, exactly what you said, because I'd always carried this deep seated belief that sales was sleazy and pushy, and that's not the way I wanted to interact with the people I was trying to serve. And uh, and once I realized that. It, like it only feels sleazy if the product's not right for the people it's built for, because then you're trying to kind of like fit the square into the circle, you know, it's like you, yep. you're trying to push and you have these perverse incentives where your short term gains come at their long term expense. And once I realized that, like, okay, sure, like, that's a problem if you get yourself into a bad situation. But once you're aware of that, and if you start earlier in the process, you can make sure that if it's a square hole, you're building a square. Uh, and if they don't align you just spend longer in product development until they do align and then by the time you're you're ready to tell people about it it's like they're like wow thank goodness you brought this to my life because I was in pain and now this thing's here and and suddenly I was like whoa like I'm not being sleazy I'm I'm adding value or like I'm helping them Uh, that was it was such a a switch for me and I, I still think I'm, I'm not an optimal salesperson and I'm never going to be an optimal salesperson, but I think that's actually okay in the early stages. And sometimes being an optimal salesperson is a bit too short term where like what you want to be is like a learning machine where you're trying to figure out like, I think you're going to love this. Do you love it? Oh, you don't quite love it. Let me go back to product. Let me try to make, let me understand why you don't love it. And you're you're trying to find this, like this love fit, you know, where it really plugs into people's lives and makes them happier.
0: Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. It's more of a process, like a cycle to go through Isn't like your work's never done and it shouldn't really be thought of like that. At least in my opinion, there's always more to do. There's always other problems. Like I, I refer back to other books that I'm a big fan of as well too, like the goal and things like that. And the Phoenix project where they talk about finding the bottleneck and eliminating it, right? Once you eliminate one problem, that becomes, that was the top problem. Now something else is the top problem, but it's your job to find it. So uh, yeah, I think it's an outstanding framework and it really helps shape how to do that particular job well. Um, and it's been an inspiration and it's offered a lot of help to a lot of product people that I know, a lot of people that I work with. We need to better understand, here's how right? we don't just build stuff and then push it out of market. Right. That's that's bad product. That's bad sales. It's like you said, like trying to force a square peg in a round hole. Instead, you need to find out like what type of box you should be building. And the only way to do that is to find out what, what the actual shape of the peg is. And you have to do it by following the the frameworks and guide laid out there in that book. Um, excellent. So I want to so well,
1: at the, at this point maybe I can just jump in and take take one minute to sort of if anyone isn't familiar with the the book to give like a quick you know I feel like we're yeah, maybe being do. too abstract if you don't know what uh sure. what the book's about so the idea is people always expect customers to tell them what to build it's like hey customer do you like this what should i change what should i build what features does it need and what i learned is that that just doesn't work uh when you ask people about your product you tend to get compliments and opinions which aren't very useful and so what I eventually realized is that there's, there's two phases. I mean, Steve Blank figured this out, but whatever. Uh, but the first stage is just like, I want to understand my customers like I understand a friend. Like when you're buying a present for a friend, you're able to get them. The better the friend, the better you understand their life, the better the present you're able to surprise them with. Because you understand what their life is like and what they've already got and don't got and what they need and what they're trying to accomplish and what frustrates them. And you can give them something that they didn't necessarily explicitly explicitly request, but which delights them and which fits right into their life. Equally, sometimes you know your best friend and you get it wrong. And that's why you include a gift receipt, you know, and then, okay, fine, we'll try again. And that's like, but if you're starting, if it's someone, a stranger, like imagine buying a birthday present for a stranger or like, you know, it's impossible. You get them something generic, something that's okay, but they, they don't love it. They never love it. Um, and so the first goal of, of customer conversations is just it's not about your idea at all. It's just understanding them like you understand your close friends. That's discovery. Uh, you don't even mention your idea. You just ask about their life. What are you already doing? Why are you doing it that way? What else have you tried? What didn't work? And then you can switch into the second phase, which you might consider the actual giving of the gift itself, where it's like, hey, does this fit into your life? And they usually confirm or reject that with their behavior. So they either give you money for it or they use it every day or they introduce you to their boss or they make a polite excuse and get away. And, and so it's like, that's the, that's the flow. So it's like not expecting people to tell you what to build, but trying to empathet- empathetically understand them as best you can. And then be like, I think this is what you need and like get the commitment to confirm or reject it and then try again.
0: Absolutely. And uh, one part of the story I always love telling too, and perhaps there's no better person to tell it than you would. Uh, when in terms of the title and where the title came from. So every time I mention the title, I get a I get a good reaction, and I end up telling that part of the story. So if you could also let us know why it's called the Mom Test.
1: Yeah, it's because people say like you shouldn't ask your mom if your business is a good idea because your mom loves you and she loves everything you do, and she believes in you blindly, right? So you're going to get biased feedback. And so people say, don't ask your friends for feedback. Don't ask your parents for feedback. But I actually think that's that's the wrong conclusion. So it's the correct observation, but the wrong conclusion. And the correct conclusion, I believe, is that you shouldn't ask anyone for their opinions about your ideas. Rather, you should frame the question in such a way that even the most biased person, your own mother, can't lie to you. So If I say, hey, mom, what do you think of my cookbook business? She's going to say, oh, it's great. If I say, hey, mom, when's the last time you bought a cookbook? She's going to say, 20 years. Why would I need another cookbook? And so by just shifting it from being less about your idea, more about their life, boom, suddenly you're getting truth and hard truths. And then you can go away and cry in your closet and then come out and decide like, okay, what do I need to change about my business or my product to make it work with this, this customer reality? Yep.
0: And so the cycle repeats. Um, that always gets a great reaction, by the way. People uh, love that story. <laughs> so having said that, another area of that, or kind of what I wanted to move into, and it comes from the work that the Mom Test talks about and how to do it, is this, this importance of customer research, right? And doing it as you're building your business, your B2B SaaS business, your software business, whatever it is that you're building, uh, whether it's early stage or you're on a rocket ship and it's experiencing hyper growth, right? The importance of customer research why you should be doing it, when you should be doing it, how much of it you should be doing. Can you give me and us a little bit of guidance here in terms of a framework as far as like, what should that process look like through the various stages of building a business?
1: So if you're completely entering a brand new industry that you have no idea about, you should probably take a while to just talk to people. But a lot of startups, assuming you've already gone through that, or assuming you're starting your business in a field where you already have some expertise and some contacts, like you had a career in that or whatever. there's a couple myths and ways people get this wrong, and I think probably the biggest myth is the idea that you do all your customer research up front, and then you know exactly what to build, and you just build the perfect thing. It's like lining up the cannon shot, and then pew, it's going to be perfect. Where what I found is that the and and this was observed by Steve Blank in, in his book Four Steps to the Epiphany. He he sort of said uh, each step of customer contact you do allows you to make a smarter set of decisions on the next cluster of product decisions and each time your product advances that allows you to get more information out of your customer conversations so he said you don't do one before the other you you do them both in parallel and they're feeding into each other so the product allows you to get more information from your customer conversations and the customer conversations are affecting your product trajectory Mm -hmm. and so the way i implement that in, in in my teams and what i recommend people do is I never like to think about customer learning in terms of weeks or months. Whenever I hear someone saying how many weeks or how many conversations, I'm like, you're doing it super wrong. I like to hear about it in terms of an ongoing commitment of time per week that you're going to do for the life of your company. And this might go up and down depending on the stage and your immediate priorities. But if someone says, you know, well, we always do uh, 10 sales calls or 20 customer support tickets per week. So what we've done is we've just made a habit of the first five minutes of those conversations we use for customer discovery. I'm like, oh, very nice. I like that because that's a low time cost. It's not so time consuming that you're going to abandon it. Um, So I like that. And that's an easy ongoing weekly commitment, which will ensure that no matter what you're working on, there's going to be this flow of learning coming in to sanity check you. If you're early stage and you don't yet have the sales uh, meetings or the support tickets, Someone might say, uh, you know, once a week I go to an industry event and I don't even tell them what I'm working on. I I just, you know, I have these learning goals and I just chat to people about how they're dealing with those things. Brilliant. You've turned one meeting, one meetup into 20 customer interviews without having to schedule any. Very efficient use of your time. You have to go in there with learning goals. You have to be a bit weird about I'm suddenly taking notes at a barroom conversation. Um, But that's doable. Um, I like... Like one of my favorite little hacks was um, some buddies of mine, the founders of Songkick. They it's a London app. Uh, they've exited now, but they they ran it for about seven years. And it's a London app for live music. It helped people find concerts that were coming near them. It's like, oh, we see from Spotify that you're into these bands. We think you'll like this concert. They're showing up next week. And they did so incredibly. Like that, they, they went through YC. They were in our YC group in uh, 2007. And they were going great. They raised money from really good investors. And then once the team got to like 30, 40 people, their kind of momentum sort of stopped. The product had gotten fairly complicated. It had a lot of different features. There was a lot of technical debt and organizational debt they were dealing with. Um, they were arguing over, should we do this or that? Should we do this or that? And they made a whole host of changes. But one that I loved is they started running a Friday afternoon party in their office. And because it was a mobile app, and they had location because they had to for the basic service, um, they basically found their most passionate users in London. And they emailed them like a subset of them each week. And they said, Hey, we're throwing a a party on Friday at our office. Like, you know, we, we know you love the app, like, we're gonna have live music, beer, you can meet the team, we'd love for you to come in. And so every Friday, they would have their 40 team members and 40 of their most passionate users. And they didn't really have an agenda. They're just like, hey, everyone, just hang out, you know, have drinks. We got a great band playing. And that gave them this like, habit of contact with their real users. And suddenly, all of these arguments between the engineering team and the product team and the blah, blah, blah disappeared. Because they're like, oh, no, I talked to someone on Friday. He said this. And everyone's like, oh, yeah, we heard the same thing. Um, and it's it suddenly like, it, it, as the organization grows, it's so common for the customer learning to slow down. Like it's really easy when it's a couple of founders, you know, you're thrashing around, you're having some conversations, you're hustling it. But as it, as it gets more organizational, I think you need to change from these uh, personality driven, like customer contact. It's like me, I'm learning everything. Trust me, I've got all the knowledge to these more uh, organizational habits. So I, I love when I hear founders talking in those sorts of terms. How do you make it sustainable? How do you make it low time cost? How do you make it a weekly habit that's going to sanity check all your decisions, not just your current decision?
0: That's excellent. I think also think that's a really creative way to do it. I've heard of other people doing similar things where they run events and like happy hours with their customers, and they use that as an opportunity, like you said, just interact with them. and get more of that qualitative data, that feedback. And that what you articulated too, in terms of like before where they were butting heads, now all of a sudden, everybody's on the same page because they heard the same story right so that that's such a great way to drive everyone in the right direction which is the direction the customer wants to go anyway but know,
1: imagine a big a big product argument you know it could it could drag on for weeks but you just say hey let's just table this we'll talk to some people on Friday and figure it out boom that's awesome and then everyone can move on to productive tasks right
0: absolutely um, everybody can get, get everybody Rowing in the right direction, right? Um, <laughs> just hard enough to do without that amount of data. <laughs> so those experiences are excellent, um, fantastic. So another question I have is, what are some of the common objections you hear to doing customer research? Right. So like, I've been there. I've I've built products without doing customer research, and they were embarrassing failures. <laughs> so I have the scars <laughs> to know why it's so important. But those that don't, um, or haven't prioritized it or maybe, you know, got lucky or whatever, right? What, what are some of the objections you hear? And then what is your response to those objections around customer research?
1: Um, I'll, I'll try to give objections from both the technical side and from the salesy executive side. So the, the tech objection is always, we could be coding and this is busy work and it's a waste of time. And this is why I wanted to put it off for so long. I mean, it was part, it was emotionally draining and scary because you're facing real world rejection and you believe that if the product is better, you won't get rejected. Like if the product is sufficiently well engineered, the world will throw a parade in your honor. But that's just not true. Like, And also, I hadn't realized that if you're building something people really care about, they're excited to talk about it. People love talking about their problems. So that whole, uh, like, is it good enough? it only needs to be good enough if you're acting like an asshole and trying to pitch it like it's perfect. Like, we're changing the world. We're the most incredible entrepreneurs ever. Look at our innovation. Well, yeah, then it needs to be pretty damn good. But if you're saying like, hey, like, I think you're suffering from an important problem and like we're trying to deal with it and we'd love to hear what you think, then you don't need any product at all. So a big part of I think the obsession with like how finished is the product comes from a place of ego and vanity. And if you go in with humility, and you're willing to reveal that you're trying to figure it out, and you care, but you don't have all the answers, suddenly that fear disappears. So that, that's one side on the technical piece. The other one on the technical piece is, is like, we could be coding, this is a waste of time. But actually, like how long does a big feature take? Months, maybe, of a team, say four engineers with a month. That's what, 40 grand, 50 grand of, like, uh, of cost, of salary cost? Oh, yeah. uh, if you can save one of those features and realize it doesn't need to be built, every so often, suddenly y- you've just like everyone can go home early. You don't need to work overtime. It's like go chill, see your dogs, see your family. Uh, for me, as an engineer, like it was such a turning point where I realized like I don't need to bet months of my life blind. I can figure out whether I'm building the right thing in advance, and then I can f- like. There's nothing more frustrating as an engineer than to build something beautiful which no one wants to use. Uh, True. That's hard. Like it feels terrible, right? Like we yep. built such cool in my first company, we we like invented a whole new animation paradigm and technology and stuff, and like zero people used it. You know? And it's like, well, that's years of my life. Like, how much <laughs> money would someone have to pay you to go into a coma for a year? Like, probably a <laughs> lot of money. Right. And I realized, like, wow, I just wasted a year of my life. I may as well have been like unconscious. You know, I built a thing that like literally added no value to anyone in the world. It was a bit of like self-indulgent technical garbage. Um, and it's like, I want to help people, you know, in whatever way matters to you. If you want to help them be evil, that's up to you or help them get more, whatever, whatever your goals are. But like the, for your goals to be enabled, like you need people using the thing. Um, and I was like, Oh yeah. Talking to them is the way that I can make sure that I'm actually using my life in a worthwhile and valuable way. Um, instead of just blindly gambling it. And then from the sales side, um, and it saves months. Like I like to say about customer conversations, yeah, it costs you hours, but it saves you months. Uh, And you won't believe me until you've seen it the first time. And then once you've actually experienced it, you will never go back. You're like, I'm not fucking programming that until you prove to me that customers (laughs) want it. Uh, And I've seen this from engineering teams, like the sales teams are like, come on, talk to customers. And then like a month later, the sales team's like, what have we done? Because the engineer teams, like the sales teams, like we need this, and the engineering teams, like prove it to me, like show me the customer quote, and and, and it, it's great. It's like a superpower awesome. for engineering. It like ten x is your your overall, maybe ten x is a strong word, but it significantly multiplies your your overall productivity. Um, on the sales side, gosh, and the executive side, um, it sucks to be selling a suboptimal product, and. A lot of the time, like the sales kit is about optimizing each meeting, like the sales toolkit, or it's like about optimizing each lead in the pipeline. So you go like, I've got this lead, I want to get maximum value out of it. But actually, like, there's this important shift where you go, okay, no, 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 I want to optimize the value of this product or this company. And often that means discovering early the ways in which it is flawed and not pushing it down people's throats. And when you do that, you can feed that learning back. Like, let's say there's a sale that's right on the line and you could force it down their throats, but instead you go, they don't love it. And you, you leave it there and you take that back to the product team and you're like, they don't love it. I think this is why. Suddenly... You've got a product that people do love. And, and, and now sales is the easiest thing in the world. You know, you're racking up incredible bonuses. You're the superhero of the team. It's like, yeah, that's product market fit. It's like, you don't, you don't have to convince people to buy it. They want to buy it. They're, they're, they're coming to you. Uh, so I think it's good for everyone, but it's so counterintuitive on both sides to open the kimono and show the humility and the vulnerability and the weakness and just be like, I don't know, but I care. And I'm trying to make it better. And I hope you care too, like help me. Like, help me to make this thing that matters to you better. Um, And if they don't care, then change what you're doing, you know, or change your customer segment, change something, like keep changing until you find something that people do care about. And I will say like the, um, the counter argument to this is truly visionary technology, like 3D printing, like still nobody cares about 3D printing. And you might go like, I don't care that they don't care. I'm just like fucking gambling my life on this. Let's go. And I admire that. That's heroic uh, it's high risk, but you know, like if you want to go into that gamble, go into it, eyes open.
0: Agreed. And I've, I've also, you've mentioned this a couple of times that humility aspect of performing that kind of work in this way on both the tech and the sales side is it feels like an uncomfortable conversation to have because everyone's like almost expected, like the pressure is to always know what to do all the time, right? Isn't like, You wouldn't possibly be in that seat if you didn't know exactly what to do and what to say always, Mm -hmm. but nothing could be further from the truth, especially in like any other aspect of anyone's life. So how would it be different here? It isn't. And uh, I've often found that that humility aspect of these customer conversations can actually significantly benefit me and anyone that I'm working with in what we're trying to do, especially on the sales side, because it's a unique experience oftentimes that the client is having. As opposed to those examples of bad sales and bad tech and so on and so forth, right? Pushing something at me, I don't want building something I'm never going to use. Instead, talk to me about my problems, like you said, which is super engaging. Collect that data. Now use that to actually deliver something people want. And then, like you said, on the sales side, people come to you. Uh, and it's just I, since I've been through that full cycle, it's, it's, a, it's unbelievable how night and day different uh, the two experiences are. And like you said, if you've been through it, like I have you'll never go back. Um, and I uh, I can't recommend strongly enough that people who haven't had this experience yet heed these warnings and investigate this using this perspective for themselves to prevent themselves from having to fall into any of these pitfalls. But thank you for sharing that. Some excellent examples of like some common pitfalls on the tech side, on the sales side, and what you could do to avoid those. Um, so Rob, I can't thank you enough for being here. This conversation has been fantastic. I could talk to you all day about this. I'm sure you can tell. <laughs> uh, there's going to be some, Excellent knowledge that you shared with us for both myself and our audience. I have two questions for you before I let you go. And the first one is, um, obviously we talked about one, I would like that for sure, but what resources would you share with our audience? Uh, books, blogs, anything like that, um, that you might mention that they can do some homework to learn a little bit more about this topic or others, anything that you might recommend? Uh,
1: my favorite and most valuable book that I've read recently is Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. and I, I I mean, this is egocentric, but I describe it as like the mom test for negotiation uh, where it like, he talks about tactical empathy. He talks about, um, you know, going into these tense like hostage negotiations. He was the head uh, hostage negotiator for the FBI globally for international terrorists, uh, like bank, bank holdups and international uh, kidnappings and stuff like that. Super uh, competent dude, very unique experience. And it's such a good book. It's such like, a beautiful blend of immediately actionable information, but the whole approach is anchored in, you know, you, you can't negotiate with someone through hostility. You know, the crazy stuff that's going on right now in the world is so backwards. It's so proven to be counterproductive. You know, if you go into these conversations where it's like, I don't need to agree with your worldview, but like, let me understand it and then like talk to you in a, in a calm and, you know, ask you these questions and, it was really a mind blower for me. Like, for example, uh, let's say someone gives you a garbage price in a sales negotiation. He suggests this question like, how can I do that? And it's such a disarming question because you're not being like, we're the best. We're amazing. It's just like, how can I do that? And immediately switches the other party. And he uses this in hostage negotiations. You need to wire us $50 million to this bank account how can I do that? I I don't even know if they're alive. I don't even know if you're going to give them back to me. And suddenly the other side is put into your shoes and they're like, oh, well, uh, we could put them on the phone with you. Uh, We could uh, put them in this safe haven as an intermediary. And suddenly they're doing your work for you. And it's all about like the using questions and using tactical empathy, he calls it, uh, to It's a complete reinvention of of the way that I understood negotiation, high stakes negotiation, and I'd avoided reading it for ages because I don't negotiate that often. You know, when I do, it's just a pitch. I give them a number, they say yes or no. It's not a big deal. But like while I was reading it, I was like, oh, let me try to acquire this business. You know, I just like wanted a playground to use my new skills, (laughs) and uh, I sent, I I like cold emailed this company. You know, I was like, hey, you know, and I, I just like used the script from his book. And I was like, I mean, it ended up falling through, but it went to the end. You know, we were like haggling over price at the end. I was like, wow, that's something I just wasn't equipped to do. So Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. Incredible. Uh, On the marketing side, This is Marketing by Seth Godin. Um, It's kind of customer development and like the mom test approach of like empathy and understanding. But like with a thread where like you can't market a flawed product. So, if you want effective marketing, you need a product people actually want. So, it kind of draws the thread backwards from marketing through to product design. Uh, both great.
0: Excellent. Thank you so much for sharing both those resources. Excellent resources. Um, and I would obviously recommend the Mom Test by Rob Fitzpatrick. We talked a lot about that today. <laughs> I'll link to all three of those in the notes. And then, last question I have for you, Rob, is uh, who should reach out to you and how can they get in touch?
1: So I'm easy to reach. I mean, I'm easy to Google. I'm pretty sure my phone number is on my website, although I don't necessarily recommend you call me, but like I'm rob at robfits.com. All my contact stuff's at robfits.com. Uh, if you have questions about implementing customer development or the mom test, or you run into problems? Tweet me, email me. I'll make a little YouTube video and send it back to you answering your question. Uh, I like doing that. It's fun for me. I'm always happy to help if I can. Uh, and if you want to help me, uh, what I'm trying to do now is to help indie authors and, you know, kind of self-published indie. If you want to work your way, write a book, put your expertise into a book. Um, I'm working on a process treating books as, as products, problem-solving products, which you can design and test just like you would any other product. Um, so I, I'm, I'm keen for uh, people to, uh, to try it and let me know how it goes for them. So if I can help you write a great book, uh, I would love to do so. So reach out to me and uh, yeah, that'd be super helpful for me. And maybe I can help you too.
0: That's excellent. Thank you for that, Rob. And I'll link to the contact info uh, in the show notes as well. Also, again, thank you enough for being here and sharing your knowledge with myself and our audience.
1: It's my pleasure. And if I can give a final tip, I would just say that uh, customer conversations aren't like math where you can hear the theory and then immediately do it perfectly. They're more like skateboarding or pottery where you're going to fall over or or mess some stuff up a few times. Uh, But the stakes are pretty low. Like, you go in with humility. It's no problem. It's like, hey, I'm confused. And then you ask some bad questions. Who cares? Uh, So, like, give yourself a bit of forgiveness and leeway to try this stuff and, and fall down safely. Like, start with the easy conversations and the friendly first contacts Take your knocks, make your mistakes, figure out what's working, uh, deal with the serious high stakes conversations later after you're already pretty confident. You're like You got to get your hands in the clay. You got to try this stuff to get good at it, but you will. And it's a super valuable career skill. It multiplies everything else that you're good at.
0: Excellent point. And thank you for sharing, Rob.
1: My pleasure. Thank you for having me and good luck with your businesses, everybody.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Product Launch. I hope you got value out of it. I like to feature product people on my podcast because that's who I love to help. I'm a product strategist and I can help you scale your business and grow your profit through a product. If you'd like to learn more about how I can help you, email me at sean at nextstep.io at sean, S-E-A-N, at nextstep, next S T E P dot or visit my website at nextstep.io. That's nxtstep.io.